Coming up today, we reveal the slow collapse of Amazon's drone delivery dream and go inside the fungi renaissance. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Matt Burgess, and joining me this week is Natasha Bunnell. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when Apple announced details of a system to find child sexual abuse material on people's iPhones. When people in the US upload photos to iCloud in the future, the technology will compare them against already known images of child sexual abuse. And this was also the week when scientists issued a warning ahead of a sixth report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The report will say that urgently reducing methane emissions is likely our only hope of staying under 1.5 degrees of warming. And that means tackling emissions from shale gas, leaky oil and gas wells and cow burps. And finally this week, Robinhood, the trading app behind the infamous GameStop short squeeze earlier this year, saw its shares surge by as much as 82% to a peak of $71 billion and then wildly go down by 22.5% in its first full week as a listed company. This follows a bit of a market debut flop last week, which saw the company's market cap shed $3 billion in just a few minutes. Well, that is a lot of money uh, and uh, changing a a lot of hands. Um, But let's keep things moving and go straight into uh, what we learned this week. Amit, you've rather ominously got a question. A question. Everyone loves a question. Um, My question for you guys is, what percentage of the population, of the global population, do you think live in the Northern Hemisphere? 30%. Okay, that's 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 so, that's so way off. I want to I want to come back and interrogate that later, <laughs> Matt. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, armed with this information, I, I definitely wasn't going to go lower than that. No, I'm thinking the equator is lower down than I always think it is, and India and China are both above the equator. They've got a billion people each. You know, Europe three hundred million, America three hundred million. I'm thinking it's going to be loads. I think it's. 75%, I'm going to say. Uh, I'm just going to go higher because just because I can. Uh, uh, 80%. It's actually 90%. 90% of the global oh, population what? live in the Northern Hemisphere. I know, I was stunned by this That's as well. Crazy. But actually, as you say, Matt, it makes sense when you think about it because India and China are mostly in the, in, up north of the equator and the equator is a lot lower down than you think. And the Northern Hemisphere has got 68% of the land but 90% of the people. I'm not going to lie, I didn't think before I answered your question. And also I did um, consider that there's a lot of water and that people can't live on water, so I thought maybe that would balance out a bit. Well, I guess but there's yeah, more water no. in, the, in, the southern, in the southern hemisphere than there is in the northern, and also a lot of ice, which we can't live on, live on either. <laughs> I guess I had no thought at all while I was answering your question. <laughs> Just wanted to be first. <laughs> but some, something you did think about, Natasha, was what you learnt this week. I've been thinking about this nonstop, actually. Um, I learned something historical, um, which is during the Cold War, Sweden became convinced that these propeller sounds that their listening technology was detecting in the sea were Russian submarines lurking in their national waters. So they started hunting them for over a decade and couldn't find them. But Swedish researchers were able to identify that these suspicious recordings were actually flatulent herring. And a crisis during the Cold War was averted. According to one investigator, the sound that they made was kind of like a flock of 
bird sitting on a telephone wire chattering, or some bacon frying. Herring are quite a silent fish, she said, but can squeeze out air through a valve near their anuses to propel themselves away from danger, doing the equivalent of a panic fart. I learned all this on BBC World, <laughs> so I, I am in awe of it and very much proud of this fact. You're welcome. Stunned silence is what I'm met with, so yeah, it's exciting to be on the podcast. Well, Guys, uh, my, honestly, how could you leave me hanging? My <laughs> so I fart. not always be the pedantic person, but if it's like from a valve near the anus, is that a fart? Because I don't like I don't know. Isn't a fart just when gas escapes from the anus itself? If it's an anus valve, does that count as a herring fart? Is it more like a herring? We need a new word for it. It's not a fart. It's not a burp. It's a it's a something else. I, I think, generally speaking, isn't it burps from the front, farts from the back, regardless of what particular valve it comes out of? <laughs> uh, I, I, I actually, I, I never learned that rule when I was growing up, to be honest. <laughs> I, 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 very, yeah, no, I, just, I just made that up. I just made that up. I really hope they don't name that rule after me. Um yeah well this is interesting because don't some jellyfish have like a mouth and an anus in the same place therefore if are they burping or farting when they expel gas from that i don't know that's probably one that we're not qualified to answer but if you do if you do know uh the answer to this <laughs> podcast at wired.co.uk for our first story this week natasha and amit we're talking about drones yeah, that's right. Let's go back to 2016, which is, uh, you know, five years ago and before that whole burping and fighting conversation um, ever took place. Um, so I want to go back to 2016 and Amazon's big fanfare about around drone delivery. So when they launched Amazon Prime Air, we were all going to get packages dropped onto our doorsteps by drones. It was going to be a revolution in package delivery i guess and you can see why amazon were really really interested in it the company offered tours of its secret drone lab to local schools that opened a new office in cambridge and released an array of promotional videos for flights that got millions of views everyone was very very excited including uk regulators who fast-tracked approvals for drone testing and made the uk an ideal test bed for drone flights paving the way for amazon to gain regulatory approval elsewhere but then nothing really happened and everything went quiet so natasha what has been happening with amazon primer in the years since then yeah, so if you'd been following the headlines, you would be expecting drones within months or years or something like that. And then the silence that we heard was was quite deafening. So um, Andrew Kersley, who is uh, the writer of this piece, he took a close look and started asking some questions as to what's been going on since the time that they were saying we were going to get drones till now. And what he found out was quite shocking. So um, insiders have claimed that the future of the UK operation is in question. They spoke on conditions of anonymity and they described that the project was collapsing inwards, was dysfunctional and resembled organised chaos. Um, They said that over 100 employees are at risk of redundancy and even more are having their jobs removed and taken elsewhere in the world um, and that the company is shuttering part of its operations in the UK. Um, They said that they were run by managers who were detached from reality in the years building up to this moment. So there's obviously a lot of detail in the story but and, and, and a lot to get through and a lot more detail than what you just mentioned so let's dive into it a little bit more. When did things start to go wrong for Amazon Primer? So things started uh, going wrong in late 2019, which is the point where Amazon stopped hiring a load of people 
and started getting rid of a load of people so that there was a bit a bit of a revolving door situation for both workers and managers at the time the drone team which was working on you know making the drone deliveries a reality was split into basically three different teams you had the humans and animals team the other man-made objects in the sky and 3d mapping team which helped drones know the difference between like a lawn or a swimming pool or your front door um, and the data analysis team which interpreted all of that data together and what happened was they suddenly found themselves um, with a lot of temp workers with a lot of new um, managers that didn't didn't know how the operation worked at all and they they described people inside the operation at the time described constant churn um having three managers in the space of one month as they were reshuffled and moved away from the primary project and it, all the senior people that were involved in the project in 2016 that were supposed to be leading these efforts to make drones a reality um had gone <laughs> and so that there was a point where one of the insiders described they had four or five new managers all at once they were leaving really really quickly often within a year of joining um another compared the exodus to rats off of a sinking ship uh, but more more interesting they that suddenly the people that were being put in were people that weren't necessarily drone experts at all. So there were people who were perhaps um, experts on the fulfillment side of Amazon or on the warehousing side and logistics side and didn't necessarily understand drones at all. So people started feeling like if they had a problem, they couldn't actually go to their managers to ask for help because their managers didn't have the expertise to help them out. It's quite unusual, really, for Amazon to get embroiled in something like this for all the faults that Amazon has with its working practices as an employer it's it's generally thought of as quite a regimented and sort of structured place to work this chaos seems like something you'd expect from an early stage startup and i guess part of the problem is that their engineers were trying to do something really unprecedented and while drone delivery may seem like a trivial technical challenge it's actually a really really difficult problem to solve because of things like the weight of batteries or safety regulations right these are dangerous heavy machines and actually if you want to fly them into people's houses then there are a lot of hurdles to overcome. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And what it feels like from what people were saying to us is that, you know, they were basically set up to fail uh, in a certain way. So, so it was like not really knowing how to handle them, not really knowing who to bring into the, the, the drone project to make it a success. And, and in the meantime, engineers were trying to do something that was that was really, really difficult, because if you look at the sort of uh, drone delivery projects around the world or the different companies that are engaged in this, the majority of them are either working on projects to only use drone drones to do sort of remote deliveries or you know to send things to uh, hospitals or to send them to places where you have obvious places to land whereas these people in this project at amazon uh, so at, at prime air were trying to um basically make sure that they could deliver anything via drone to your doorstep and as you know in reality most of us don't have gardens or landing strips or anywhere that any kind of drone could land some people don't, don't even have balconies or anything like that so they had to figure out how exactly to, they were going to make that work in a logistical sense so there was there was that side of things so it's like where do you even land the drone and then there was another problem which is that all that machine learning to say i'm going to identify your swimming pool so i don't fall in it i'm going to make sure i avoid your dog so i don't land on top of its head means that they 
had to incorporate a lot of elements on that drone, which made it weigh a hell of a lot more than your average drone. So we're talking about about 27 kilos, um, which, which is heavier than the threshold used by some authorities to classify a small drone. So that means that they were subject to extra regulations, including higher safety requirements, which they had to figure out. Because if you can imagine, if you're walking down the street and suddenly a 27 kilo drone falls on your head by accident, it could probably kill you or at least hurt you really, really badly. So they had to figure out a way to include those sort of safety measures in, in place because they had different parameters to reach. So all of that was really, really tricky to do whilst you're having different managers and different, you know, orders barked at you all of the time. Yeah, and as you say, those technical problems fed into some of the management problems. The work that they were being asked to do was constantly shifting. The people that they were doing being asked to do it by were changing all the time, I guess, as people came into the project realized the scope and the scale of the work was constantly shifting under their feet and then you know tried to adjust but it was the employees that ended up bearing the brunt of this right that's right and you know the the insiders that that we talked to described that the only contact that they had with central office was this american executive who would travel in to visit them every few months buy them pizza and then ask them to double their workload without any explanation or answering any of their questions and you know they they felt like they were completely disconnected from the sort of general amazon hub uh, that they were completely sort of left adrift and that it was very difficult to get things done and and if you look at sort of the, the timeline in, in the piece which we kind of explain we go through what happened next you know we're looking at around february 2020 so just before the pandemic started being a big problem amazon began this restructuring process and triggering these job losses and the people we spoke to said that managers admitted in a stand-up meeting for data analysts that the promise of permanent employment was no longer on the table and that crushed them so you have people who are trying really really hard under very difficult circumstances and they felt that this was sort of the the beginning of the end for them yeah and there's some i mean andrew's done a, a brilliant job reporting this piece and there are some crazy stories that have come out of some of the reporting that he's done of this just completely demoralized team who who clearly just didn't care anymore had had enough of being messed around he talks about a guy who opened a can of stella at his desk at you know at 11 in the morning which is um you know fine if that's what you'd, you'd like to do but probably not what you'd expect in a an office that was full of motivated employees another person describes an employee who, whose job was to basically manually check frames of footage to identify whether or not there are hazards in them to train a machine learning model and he had just pinned down the approve button so that all these frames are being approved regardless of whether there's hazards in them or not and that's where this kind of thing starts to get really dangerous and that's why it's such a big problem because if you are doing work that is going to be used to train a model which is going to be used to provide a drone to determine whether or not the thing it's landing on is a person or you know not then it's it's quite serious and everything just started collapsing inwards they say because amazon piled too much on they put people in charge who didn't know anything about the product project and they oversold things as what one employee says one former employee says um Amazon, of course, said that safety was a top priority for the drone project and says it has rigorous procedures in place to check the work of employees and that swift action was taken in any cases of misconduct. But the question is really like, where does this leave Amazon Prime Air and where does it leave drone delivery in the UK and elsewhere? 
Yeah. So at the, at the moment, it, we're in an interesting point in the in the prime air sort of history because quite recently Amazon got approval to start doing test flights in the US and it seems really excited about that and once again we're seeing very much echoes of 2016 of people being really excited about the prospect of you know Amazon making their their drone project happen and it does seem very much like you know this restructuring has put in place you know more people in other locations that aren't the UK to make that happen but again, you know, we, we don't really have a huge amount of insight into what Amazon's thinking is around the future because Amazon did not provide an interview for this piece. So we couldn't speak to anyone in a position to talk to us about strategy or future plans. Amazon has obviously said that it will continue to have a presence in the UK and has said that it will it has employees working here. So one would expect that they would have some form of presence here, but it's not necessarily clear how important it would be compared to the 2016 promise. Um, um, so, so this is the the interesting scenario that we're faced with at the moment, where you don't really know how Amazon is necessarily going to catch up with competitors who've kind of gone far and beyond what they've been able to do. Um, when you've got these inherent problems in the UK as your history <laughs> of the project, and it's not clear whether those problems will happen again in the US. So, very very uncertain future. The people who we spoke to working here very much said that they don't believe that this project is going to get off the ground um, and, and they feel very dispirited about everything. So, yeah, big question mark. Amir. Yeah, I think fundamentally part of the problem is that, as you say, drone delivery doesn't really make a lot of sense, particularly in the short term. So there are the issues that we talked about around the weight of batteries and battery technology in its current state means that there's a limit to how far you can fly and the more you're the, pack, the heavier the package you're trying to carry gets, the harder it is to actually fly at any real distance. And then there's the question of what drone delivery is actually for. And I can see that it makes sense in, in rural areas where there's no road network. If you need to deliver medical supplies to a remote area of the rainforest, for example, then you know a drone might be your best bet for doing that. But in, in built-up countries and cities, we've spent billions of pounds <laughs> designing road networks and building our cities around these networks that make it easy to get between places by road. So saying we're just going to ignore that and bring a drone in to do it just doesn't seem to make sense to me and then on top of that there's this whole shift that we've seen in with the gig economy that's driven down the price of just hiring someone on a bike to like courier something to you we, it, particularly in cities we've seen the rise of companies like get here that will bring you food from the supermarket in less than 15 minutes and it's almost impossible for a drone to compete with that and frankly why would you want it to so i just think it's one of those things that maybe made sense in 2016 as a sort of concept, but actually now it's hard to see drone delivery really, really being a thing that's practical for most people and, and maybe will be confined to very, very niche applications. It's kind of like the same um, curse of the driverless car, isn't it, really? When you think, why should I teach a car to do what I could get a human to do? for a very very low cost and that's that's something that you think in the future maybe if drones are able to you know carry packages that are you know heavier than 500 grams like you know carrying a dvd or a book by drone isn't cost effective and it'd probably be a huge logistical nightmare I mean, you can imagine drones crashing into each other um and that's if you even use them uh but it's it's it, you can't really see that happening right it makes more sense for someone to deliver it it like drones can't carry the equivalent of an entire van and until that happens, I just, I don't see it. Um, but, you know, I've been surprised before. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it does very much feel that like some of these deliveries uh, and drones for this use could be uh, a long way off if, if they even happen at all. Um, we've obviously seen a lot of drones being used for sort of filming and footage and, and things like that. Um, so that may be one area where they grow a bit more. But let us know what you think. Do you think that uh, we're going to see a future where there will be drones delivering us packages in cities and areas? Uh, what would you like to get delivered by a drone? Um, let us know any of your thoughts. Podcast at wired.co.uk. For our second story this week, we're talking about the boom in alternative protein. So if you go into a supermarket at the moment, you'll quite often find uh, lots of the shelves are crammed with new uh, meat alternatives, plant-based burgers, bacon, sausages, whatever you you fancy really can be there. Um, And we've seen in the last few years um, the rise in in this industry grow massively. So in the UK alone, the sale of meat substitutes grew from 580 million in 2014 to 816 by. 2019 and very much is is the case with lots of products where people's uh consumer attitudes and spending uh sort of happens also the investment follows as well so the industry itself has seen a huge amount of uh, money being poured into companies creating meat alternatives um, and different types of proteins um and this is within sort of the billions really lots of companies that people would have heard of beyond meat impossible foods are sort of leading the way but there's also um other companies in this area and leading the sort of like alternative protein scene so while there's a lot of attention on proteins there's also a big rise in the interest in developing fungi Matt Reynolds. That's absolutely right, Matt. Before I start, I might do our listeners a quick favour with a little bit of a definition here. People might be wondering what the difference between mushroom and fungi are. Essentially, mushroom are fungi, but fungi are not mushrooms. So fungi is basically this broad group which includes mushrooms, but it also includes stuff like yeasts and moulds. And what we're talking about today, which is making protein out of fungi, is basically taking these below-ground structures, these kind of roots called mycelia, and turning those into protein. So we're not talking about the above-ground fungi, which is mushrooms. We're we're mostly talking about the below-ground stuff. So just want to keep that in your head, that we're talking about these kind of fungi roots that exist below the ground. Sometimes they've got mushrooms as well. Sometimes they just exist below the ground with these thread-like roots. But this core technology, this idea of turning fungi into protein, is actually pretty, pretty old. So this goes all the way back to the mid-1960s when this British movie mogul who then inherited a flour company, is called J. Arthur Rank. He was looking for a way to turn all of his excess wheat into protein for human consumption. And basically, he got a bunch of scientists and said, look, find me a microbe, find me a fungi that's good at turning uh, wheat, good at turning starch into protein. And his scientists went and looked at 300 different fungi. And in 1968, they found what they were looking for, conveniently very, very close to, to the uh, the organization's headquarters. It was in a village, in a compost heap, in a village that's just south of High Wycombe in England. And they found that they had this fungus that fitted what Arthur Rank was looking for pretty perfectly. It grew easily in fermenters, And it turned into this relatively flavourless hunk of high-protein food that they called mycoprotein. And fast forward a little bit, and by 1985, this mycoprotein was approved for sale. And there's a good chance that if you're listening, you've eaten it, especially if you're, you know, in the UK or Europe, and it's called corn. Now, corn was something of a slow burner. It's not exactly what you think of um, when it comes to 
you know, high-tech, exciting, non-meat meats. And in fact, it, it took a long time for the company to start making a profit. It didn't turn a profit until 1998. And over the decades, the brand kind of bounced in a slightly unloved way between these big food conglomerates and private equity firms. And it's current owner, kind of weirdly, is a company called Monday Nissan Corporation, which is a Philippines-based firm that manufactures noodles, crackers, and a jelly-based drink that's meant to be a kind of a stress reliever. So corn is this slightly underloved but quite successful mycoprotein that kind of started this whole area. Yeah, when you, when you talk about corn like that, it's something that, uh, I mean, I eat quite a bit as well, but uh, it's not a brand that maybe uh, particularly excites people uh, in terms of like sort of when you see a lot of these new startups in this area, but it is one that does have a monopoly on uh, fungi food production. Um, and as you say, Matt, it's been around for decades. So how how is it made and, and why is it suddenly getting so much attention, this, this bigger idea? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Really, mycoprotein... Yeah, the name corn has been synonymous for mycoprotein basically as long as the brand has been around. No one else has really been doing it, especially when it comes to products that are sold directly to consumers. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one reason is that to begin with, the company that made corn, Marlow Foods, just had a lot of patents over the fermentation process. So that kind of restricted who could use this kind of technology. I mean, anyone can use a fungus, but the exact ways of how you ferment that fungus, they can be patented. Now, those patents are expired, but the company's had a really, really big head start when it comes to producing mycoprotein at an industrial scale. And that's really because it's, it's a slightly complicated and expensive process. So the way corn's mycoprotein is brewed, it's in these big 150,000 litre fermenters, which you basically can think of as a big loop. They're not really a tank. If you think about fermenters, often you think of a tank where stuff is stirred. That's not really how this works. This is in a kind of a big uh, loop where this fungus is kind of shuttled around and around. I think it's something like, you know, some kind of surprising speed. Sometimes corn says it's the fastest fungi in the world, which is a slightly you know, embarrassing way to put it. But it gets across this concept that the fungi is constantly looping and looping around this uh, uh, reactor while it's feeding on this sugar solution that comes from wheat. And what basically happens is that this funky grows really, really fast. And after about four days, it's ready to be harvested. And the good thing is, is that, you know, unlike a cow, which you kill once and you harvest once, this fungi, because it keeps expanding, because it keeps growing, you can harvest consistently over about 30 days. And it it gives off mycoprotein in the rate of about two tonnes every single hour. And then what you do is you take this mycoprotein, which comes out as a kind of wet dough, really. Um, you Then you freeze it, which pushes together those threads that I talked about. And that's what gives it that quite meaty texture. These is these threads that the fungi, fungi create, and then they're pushed together when you freeze it at the right temperature. And then what they do is they flavour this and they process it and turn it into a whole bunch of uh, meat analogues that readers are probably or listeners are probably quite familiar with, you know, mints, fish fingers, kebabs, turkey dinosaurs, and you know, quite famously a couple of years ago in the UK, Greg's vegan sausage rolls. And those sausage rolls really did make a bit of a splash once they were announced a couple of years ago. There was a lot of uh, debate and some people were very sort of angry that there could be a sausage roll that had got, was filled with corn rather than just meat. But I think that over time we're seeing the sort of attitudes here change to, towards uh, people's uh, opinions around sort of alternatives meats. And Matt, you've really been speaking to some of the sort of new uh, wave of mycoprotein companies that are trying to bring a sort of more contemporary vision 
to the sector. Um, these companies, they want to essentially make microprotein a core of everything that we eat rather than just uh, put it into some individual products. Um, so what, what can we sort of look forward to here in this space? Yeah, I think the reason why this new wave of startups is a little bit different to what's gone before is because they're thinking about microprotein much more as a core ingredient rather than something that just makes meat analogs. And, and one way to think about microprotein is as something a bit like soy. You know, soy is in, you know, look at the back of a packet and soy is in loads and loads and loads of products. It, it turns up in really surprising places because whenever you need a protein, it's a very widely grown and very cheap and readily available form of protein. Now, the people I've been talking to say there's no reason why microprotein can't expand into a similar role and even take over lots of the gaps or take over lots of space that soy is in currently. So they're saying, you know, we're talking meat substitutes, but we're also talking about drinks, cereal bars, baked goods and yogurts. They're really saying that with the technology we've got now to create microprotein, there's no limit to where this can be applied. So I spoke to Ramkumar Nair, who's the CEO of a Swedish microprotein company called Mycarina, um, who basically outlined this idea of microprotein um, as an ingredient. And their whole idea is to be a supplier of ingredients. So they're saying, okay, look, if you want to buy corn, you want to buy microprotein directly from a brand, then maybe corn does that bit. Maybe it just sells direct to consumer microprotein. But he's saying, look, there's all these other companies that want to get involved in meat-based products. You know, there's all these big food com- you know, companies, you know, whatever, Unilever and, and companies like that, that don't have a whole bunch of expertise in creating you know, their own non-meat meats. So their idea is, well, come to us, We'll sell you microprotein. We'll also sell you technology to ferment and turn this into products. And they're basically partnering, at the moment, they're partnering with a bunch of Swedish brands to release microprotein-based meatballs, sausages, and and chicken nuggets. And they're working on a whole bunch of other things, you know, bacon, cold cuts, jerky, and protein balls. And their whole pitch, if you like, is forget about selling it directly to consumers as a microprotein brand. We're here for any other company that wants to get involved and create their own microprotein product and they can create their own vegan line of of products or plant-based line of products. And there might be some uh, major advantages here. You already mentioned soy, but there's also sort of pea protein as one of the other sort of like big alternative meat sort of competitors. Um, And with those uh, other alternatives, there's um mycoprotein has some different advantages and and things around its texture compared to uh compared to them yeah absolutely so mycoprotein has has a few different advantages that might make it you know preferable to something like soy or pea protein so one is that it's quite good at creating this meaty texture pretty naturally so as i mentioned earlier on it comes from this meaty texture comes from mycelia which is this massive branching thread-like structures that fungi form when they grow quite like the roots of plants now plant-based proteins don't have this structure naturally so they typically go through this additional process called extrusion so they're kind of um they're put under pressure and heat to you know basically form these kind of bonds that make it um you know kind of fibrous like meat is there's also the advantage that uh Fermentation is quite a cost-effective way of growing protein. You know, fungi need a source of sugar to grow on, but they're not particularly fussy about where it comes from. So one option that lots of firms are exploring is using uh, growing fungi using crops that would otherwise be thrown away. You know, pretty much any crop or fruit, things like that, or cereal crops, you know, wheat or you know, rice or other things like that, um, they, you know, they, they, they basically boil down to being a source of sugar. So they're actually quite a cheap way um, to grow fungi. So 
They're basically saying that if we can get the price down low enough to compete with soy, then mycoprotein will look like a much more attractive ingredient. And there's actually a third element as well, is that soy and pea protein, um, they're both legumes, so they have these slightly chalky, bitter flavours, and that causes some problems that um, sometimes you have to mask that by using more salt or fat or sugar or different flavour enhancers, whereas... One of the advantages of mycoprotein is that it's, it's very, it doesn't taste of much at all. It's a very neutral base. So that, you know, that means you don't, perhaps you can make slightly healthier products. You don't need to put so many different uh, things to cover up that taste. And it also makes it quite a flexible um, basis for lots of different flavorings. So there's a few different reasons why it might have some advantages over something like soy or, or pea protein. Yeah, and you, you mentioned taste there, Matt, but on on this area and sort of flavour, there are lots of things that sort of uh, mycoprotein could potentially help with here as well. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier on, people want to turn fungi into all kinds of things. So there's one company I, I spoke to that's based in Colorado, they're called Mycotechnology, and basically they turn fungi into a, a flavour enhancer that blocks bitter taste receptors on the tongue, taking the edge off this kind of unpleasant aftertaste that's associated with artificial sweeteners, such as aspartame. That's a huge problem. Um, you're seeing, yeah, there's been clampdowns in the, in the UK and other countries in the world in terms of using sugar in drinks. So soft drink companies often turn to things like, you know, aspartame or stevia, um, but they come with these slightly unpleasant aftertastes. So they need something to block it. And this company, Microtechnology, says, look, you can just take a fungi, you ferment it, turn it into a powder, add that to the drink in something like one part per million, five parts per million, a really, really tiny, tiny amount. And what that does is it, it blocks these bitter taste receptors on the tongue um, for about 15 to 30 seconds. And then it, it, it kind of um, is digested away. And that's enough to kind of take this edge that, that you get in, in drink. So that's already being used in 100 beverages around the world. Sometimes it's called, you know, mushroom extract. Sometimes it's called a natural flavour enhancer. That's the type of thing that you see on the label. But this bitterness, as I mentioned, is also a problem with plant-based proteins. You know, as I said, people, if you look at um, results when people taste pure pea protein, they often say it's beany, it's grassy, it's chalky, it's bitter, or, or it tastes earthy. And that's a really, really big problem, especially for companies like Impossible or or beyond that are making plant-based burgers out, out of these kind of proteins. Now, Mycotechnology's approach is to ferment pea protein along the alongside the mycelia of shiitake mushrooms to basically take away some of those unpalatable flavours and make an end result that also has slightly higher protein availability. So there's this idea that we don't actually just need to use mycoprotein on its own. If you use it alongside different types of proteins and plant-based proteins, you can maybe make those problem, um, those uh, proteins better as well. So what I'm hearing here is mycoproteins, lots of different advantages around sort of texture, flavor, taste, uh, all of these types of things, really. Um, but at the moment, we're still sort of like very much sort of fiddling around the edges of sort of this being produced at scale. Um, if you look at the meat industry, it's obviously huge. There's uh, vast uh, swathes of land dedicated to ranches, to, to farming, to all sorts of things. Um, and that's very much dominates the the food industry and the landscape that we've got at the moment. So if something like mycoprotein is going to succeed and become something that uh, becomes a part of our sort of daily lives or for many people, maybe, um, what needs to happen here to sort of transform the industry? Yeah, I think that's a really important point because although 
maybe a, certainly in a country like the, the UK, people are like, oh, you know, um, plant-based meat is everywhere. It's a huge trend. It's all this stuff. But really, if you compare it to global meat consumption, it's tiny. It's, it's, it's almost so tiny as to be, you know, irrelevant. So if you look at a company like Mycoprotein, which also, Mycotechnology, sorry, which also makes kind of pure Mycoprotein product, you know, it's talking about ramping up production to around 200,000 tonnes a year. But you compare that to global meat production, which is 340 million tonnes in 2019, and it's just going up. So really, there's a huge, huge space for mycoprotein to go into. And, and if it's going to make a dent on meat consumption, it's got a really, really long way to go. There are signs that perhaps new ways of fermenting might um, you know, bring more companies into the space that, that we didn't see before. So there's a quite interesting company that's based in Chicago. It's called Nature's Find, and it, it grows this fungi that was found um, in these really acidic springs in Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park. I think actually um, the pH was kind of like battery acid where this um, thing came from. So a very extreme environment, which makes it surprisingly good at generating protein because it's used to uh, doing a lot with, with not many resources. And although this company has only released you know, a pretty small amount of um, these breakfast patties and dairy-free cream cheese. It's already netted around a quarter of a billion um, in funding, which basically makes it the best funding of this new wave of mycoprotein startups. People like Breakthrough Ventures have invested into it and a whole bunch of people that are interested in this space. So there's lots of signs that as Impossible was doing 10 years earlier, that lots of money is, is flowing into this area because people think, okay, something new is going on here and we should be paying attention to it. And actually, Nature's Find has quite an interesting low footprint way of growing its fungi, which might bring its cost down and make it scale easier. So people are saying, actually, maybe this makes it much more cost comparative with soy and makes it much more desirable as an ingredient. And we're also seeing that um, the big, big food companies, as I mentioned, uh, you know, Unilever are starting to pay attention. So in May 2021, a Scottish mycoprotein uh, company called Enough announced that it's going to supply mycoprotein to Unilever's plant-based brand, The Vegetarian Butcher. And also talking to other brands, they're saying, you know, maybe we're only talking about meat analogs at the moment, but we're working on uh, mycoprotein-based cheeses. We're working on drinks that have mycoprotein in it, ice cream, yogurts, you know, as a big replacement for dairy. So there's real sense that we're kind of building up to this moment where there's all these other kind of applications that could be just around the corner and it could, um, you know, start to chip away at, you know, big food ingredient like soy. So it's definitely a, a space I think there's probably going to, a lot is going to happen in the next two to three years. Yeah, there's certainly a, lot, certainly a lot of money and innovation going into this space. And you can find out a lot more about mycoprotein and where it's uh, being used and its its future in Matt's piece, which there's a link to in the show notes. And now time for some feedback. Natasha, you've got uh, a piece now. Hi. So, yeah, we got some feedback from a man called Jerome. And I feel like it was so good. I have to basically almost read it in its entirety. So he says... I finished listening to your conversation about when to go back to the office and I was astonished. If I remember correctly, you have one team member working on his ironing board, another sending hundreds of Slack messages per day, another with a nest of birds for distraction. If you're more productive there than in your office, isn't your office wrong? Isn't the office a place for work? Isn't that the only purpose of that space? How can it be that your setup at home is so much more productive than your work setup? I just don't understand, he says, how you assume and accept that you cannot concentrate properly when in the office. 
Is it a normal or healthy thing in your relationship to your job to want to do it in your personal cave? And what does James think about the team wanting to stay partly or mainly in a remote setting? Dear Jerome, (laughs) this is my response. Thank you for writing in. You are right. We have had our issues working from home during the pandemic. Matt Reynolds has probably developed a permanent hunchback. James and I are still massive slack addicts. And Amit was devastated that his only entertainment, which was watching these birds in the tree, was ended by their untimely disappearance and possible demise. It is also true that James was unable to host today's podcast because his house is being drilled to bits by some builders. But Jerome, much as we like to complain, there are huge positives to working from home. We've been able to have lunch and dinner with our families every day, go to runs in the park to clear our heads, been around to pick up kids from school, taken some quick naps when we needed and frankly stopped wearing shoes entirely in my case. So we spent more time with the people that we love. Um, We just like to moan about all the problems we've had. And I can't speak for everyone in the world, but all this positive stuff certainly beats eating lunch on top of our keyboards at work. But Jerome, please feel free to lobby Condenas on our behalf for a better office with some working toilets. Go for it. You have my blessing. Uh, We did try to reach James for his opinion on us not wanting to go back to the office full time. But all we got was the sound of drilling, which sounds remarkably similar to the sounds of herrings farting. So draw conclusions from that as you will. (laughs) Thank you, Jerome. (laughs) Thank you for that, uh, Natasha. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. That's very much a, a sort of agony aunt uh, come sort of uh, defense of working from home. But yeah, I'm sure many people have obviously sort of got different motivations for wanting to go into the office and uh, going back to the office. Uh, and there's probably lots of people that can sort of uh, feel a lot more productive in the office and be very much uh, feel like that's where that they want to work from. It, at the end of the day, it's all a very sort of like personal decision that companies are very much having to sort of try and take into account after people have spent a long time working very differently um so yeah if you've got any more thoughts on working from home on your uh situations going forward uh feel free to email us podcast at wired.co.uk and we'll be again we'll be back again next week goodbye Bye. bye